Father God, as we come before your word this morning, a word we know well, a word that we have often heard from at this time of year, let us consider it once again. Let us uncover further truths and let us be fed from it yet again to learn new things about the wonders and glories and grandeur of your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We actually sang about it in our first hymn, Angels from the Realm of Glory. The first verse was about this, but in the high, I, I teach two high school classes here on Wednesdays, and we just finished up our first term, or our first semester, you could say. And for the Old Testament survey course, we actually finished in the book of Job. And in the book of Job, in chapter 38, there is this remarkable moment where God is making clear to Job, Job, you don't know my ways. You don't know how I do things. You don't have the knowledge to even come in, in one sense to question me. And there's this verse there in Job. It might be in 7 or 8. I could go check my notes. But there's a verse there that actually reveals to us this little Easter egg, this little piece of truth that actually our first hymn mentioned in its verse. And it's the fact that when the cosmos was created, when the universe was created, when the earth was created, the angels were singing. We don't actually know that from Genesis 1. We know that from Job chapter 38. That when God's creative canvas burst out on that which was once formless and void, darkened and without shape, as His creative life and light-giving power burst forth, the angels couldn't help but sing. They couldn't help but praise. And I thought about that verse this week because in one sense, there's this depiction in Scripture that the first Adam was created in light, in joy, in celebration, in a cosmos and in a world that was unstained from the gross realities of sin. And then we have here in Scripture, the Gospel of Luke, the angels singing again. And they're singing for the second Adam, as the Bible calls him at times, the baby Jesus. This second Adam who is being delivered in darkness. He's not like the first Adam in that blast of light is what really conceives him. And yet, this baby who is veiled in glory is very light of light and very life of life. He is the God. He is the brightest of all lights. And so there's this amazing kind of contrast in the two Adams, in the two moments where the angels are singing in the creative glory of the two Adams of Scripture that we begin with here. And it be, makes me wonder a little bit what it must have been like for the angels 
The angels are not stained with forgetfulness or sin. They've been perfectly praising the Lord for all eternity. They had been there at the first. They had been singing at the first. What must it have been like for them to see that the one who originally created the world was coming into the world? The Bible actually gives us a good guess as to what the angels were thinking as they sang this song in Luke. We read from the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, we read that the angels, when it comes to the plan of redemption, the plan that God has set in motion in order to save a people unto Himself, that sometimes they basically kind of sit there and marvel and wonder, and they long to understand it all. They long to just, they just, it's almost as if they go, and don't take this too far, but God, what are you doing? How are you doing this? This is incredible. They have a sense of the awe and wonder of this all, and this must have been just such a marvelous moment for them. The song must have just been so much grander, so much greater in this moment than even when the world first began. Now, when it comes to the angels, it's always good to ground ourselves in what the biblical image of angels is. This is going to disappoint some people. First off, angels aren't fat, pudgy, toddler-looking things with wings that kind of look bored at times. Angels have never faltered in their worship and devotion of God. Also, we like to kind of maybe depict angels as genderless or as... Male and female sometimes. I hate to break it to you. The Bible is a gendered Bible. It has a masculine tense. It has a feminine tense. It also has a neuter or a neutral tense. Angels, which are God's warriors, God's messengers, uh, are always depicted in the masculine tense. Angels are always men, in which I had to think about the tree topper ornament I had as a child. It was of a female angel on top of the tree. It totally called my childhood Christmas tree all into question, just considering that. The angels are worshipful warriors of God. They are heralds of the message of truth, and they are unfailing. Actually, and Rob just taught on this passage in men's study. But in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, Daniel receives a vision of the Lord, the Ancient of Days. And in that vision, Daniel, if we take his numbers literally, and it could just be metaphorically, but Daniel saw a million angels actively attending to the Ancient of Days, and he saw another hundred million angels standing and awaiting in the presence and reverence obedience to the Lord in the highest of heavenly places. And actually, if the numbers of Daniel uses are correct, our best biblical guesstimate as to how many angelic voices the shepherds hear in singing about the Lord would be more than a hundred million angels. 
That's, that's an incredible thing. I don't want to unpack the Septuagint and how we get to that number, but that's actually the best biblical guess. Here we just enjoyed young children's voices, a, a collective, a small collective, just joyfully singing unto the Lord. What that would have sounded like. Hundreds of millions of angels singing unto the Lord. We know that even in the presence of one angel, one angel is so majestic and marvelous that even the Apostle John, after he has seen the risen Lord, as he is writing the book of Revelation, in chapter 22, verse 8, he sees an angel at some point, the angel that has been commissioned to reveal these things unto John, and he hits the deck and starts to worship the angel. And the angel gets mad at John and says, what are you doing? You know you need to worship God alone. And so it must have been incredible, this vision that the shepherds receive. And we are a creature like the angels. We are a created thing like the angels. And yet I would also guess that part of what the angels wonder about when it comes to the plan of redemption is that for angels, for every waking moment of their existence, they have been living in light of the worship of God, the God who is, the God who was, and the God who is to come. And we, in comparison, we as mortals, we as humans, we, metaphorically speaking, we hit the snooze button on worshiping God. We are creatures that put that off. We are creatures that find worship of God often tedious. And it can cause us, and it should cause us to ask ourselves, a God who also already at, the, at His disposal has such a great multitude of angels that are unwaveringly faithful to Him, why would He need us? Why does such a God bother with us? Why is it that God would be mindful of us? And the harsh reality of that question is, He really shouldn't be mindful of us. And that's the amazing part of amazing grace. He really shouldn't concern Himself with us. He really isn't a God that needs us. We rejected Him. We despise Him. We groan and even offering Him a small token of worship sometimes. And yet He's the God who has still decided to set His love upon us and never relent from such love. It's actually an often missed reality in this Gospel of Luke that what the angels say here at the very beginning will actually be repeated almost verbatim later, at another moment, at another hour. And it's actually at the triumphal entry of Jesus. Now, i got to dispose of one quick myth about the triumphal entry. I'm talking about Palm Sunday, as some know it. Pastors, pastors love to make this preaching point. I don't think it's biblically true. You know, the people that are Praising him on Palm Sunday are the same people saying crucify him a couple days later. I don't think that's the case. I think Jesus came into town with his throng of followers. The throng of followers, though, in the midst of millions, get kind of dispersed. When Jesus is arrested, 
his sheep disperse, as we see in the scriptures. But look to this. Look to this moment in Luke chapter 19. He knows this is in his gospel. He knows this is coming. He intentionally puts this here. We read the following in Luke 19, verses 35 through 40. And they brought the donkey to Jesus. It's so appropriate, our call to worship. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. This is where they almost echo the angels entirely in the Greek. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. For the angels, they've always worshipped God. They've always basked in the great waters of God's glory. But we, humanity, we have been born, as the Scriptures tell us, with hearts of stone. We are thick-headed and stubborn. And I was thick-headed and stubborn long before my wife ever told me I was. We refuse to worship God above all others. And yet, in the course of the life of Christ, even in the triumphal entry itself, we see that some of the rocks, some of those hearts of stone in unbelievers had been changed with the encounter of Christ, through the work of Christ, through the coming of Christ. And, they, and Jesus had broken down something in them, a dividing wall of hostility in them. And they began to join the chorus of the angels and echo the praise of heaven above. So they could sing, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so why, in part, did Jesus come? In part, so that we, once created to worship and glorify God in all we think and do, could finally join that heavenly throng, that heavenly choir of God. Now, I have a fairly terrible voice. If you don't believe me, just ask Zach Stike. He's not here this week again, right? He had to suffer through my singing. I didn't turn off my mic last week while he was at home watching the stream. I felt bad for him. I apologized. But I can never fully doubt the graciousness of the people of old Goshenhoppen because some fools encouraged me to join the choir and sing at times. And I'm a terrible voice. And I really offer nothing to the group except staying off key and being off pitch and really just longing to have my voice hidden by individuals such as Adam and Walt. I fully expect at some point they're going to come up to me and go, okay, Kevin, it's time to retire you. Our grace, our grace is it only can extend so far. You need to, but they've been gracious to me. And I do, I enjoy singing. I enjoy being part of that throng. The coming of Christ is an invitation to all of us, regardless of the imperfect notes that we have in our life. We have so many imperfect notes, so many times where we fail to be the people we should be. 
I would say we are a half-hearted people, that, but that's giving us too much credit. We are a people who are wholly corrupt without God. Wholly unworthy of praising Him, of being a part of that heavenly chorus. And yet in the coming of Christ, in the inbreaking of Christ, the truth of the matter is, God has set His love upon us and He desires us to boldly sing and to boldly be a part of the heavenly choir. In part, one of the reasons why Luke wants you to see a parallel between what the angels sing at the beginning of Christ's coming and what the people herald and proclaim at the final week of Christ's life is the fact that we too are called to sing a part of that heavenly choir, to share that good news upon our own mountaintops, upon our own places where we can share the good news of Christ inviting us in, welcoming us in to see Him, to see Him in all His glory. Regardless of who we are, regardless of the fact that we are, in one sense, the shepherds of life, the lowly, the despised. He says, come all the more likely. Come and sing. Come and be a part of the worship. The point of Christianity is not that our voices will ever be enough in this life that we'll be the lead tenor of the Lord's choir. No, we have human limitations. And yet Christmas is God telling us, I still have come for you, that you might join in my heavenly choir. Even though you doubt the quality of your voice, the worthiness of your voice, come to me. Come and worship the newborn king. It's all sweet music to me. Another remarkable thing about the setting in which the angels are singing is this. Why are Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem? They're in Bethlehem because Caesar, in his legions and power, he wants to count all his grandeur and all his glory. And right under Caesar's nose, a whole host of angels, possibly numbering in the hundreds of millions, more than his entire empire, are praising the greatest Lord of all, really the only Lord of all. And I bring it up for the following reason. Christian, even when the Caesars of this world are proud of their greatness and their glory, of how unquestionably right they are, God loves to shame the proud. And He loves to use the very things that they think will establish their greatness, their glory, to, to usher in their demise. The angels knew as they sung that Caesar wasn't really counting the entire world. They had watched it being created. They knew exactly of its vastness and size. They saw the ebbs and flows of civilizations and histories and how the multitudes spread out. They had a heavenly perspective. And the perspective was one that testified that Caesar is no true Lord at all. There was only one Lord. And that Lord had been born into the world as a human baby boy. And for that, they sung with an ever greater sense of awe. And what did they sing? They sang, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace amongst those whom He is pleased. This is by far the shortest hymn of the four songs at the beginning of Luke. We will look at it in this series. And yet, don't let the brevity of the words confuse you into thinking there's not much here. 
The first thing I want us to appreciate is the fact that when it comes to the lyrics of this hymn, how the song moves from heaven to earth. When they sing glory to God in the highest, they're not picturing God in, by the moon or God by the sun. They have in mind the highest heights of heavenly glory, a place so glorious that those in Scripture who have been able to witness it, they have at times fallen down as though dead. The heavenly place they are talking about is in one sense the glory cloud of all glory clouds. It is the most epic point of God's abiding presence with created things. Angels are created things. Heaven is a created things thing. It did not exist before God. And often we forget that even heaven itself, according to the scriptures, will be recreated anew, just as the earth will be. But wherever this grand throne room is, where those things created experience the everlasting abiding presence of the God who is infinite and eternal, everlasting from everlasting, the angel's hymn reaches us from that realm and that place and pours into the world, this world. And the shepherds likely had a portal-like vision of the angels singing from heaven throne room itself. And by the way, in the lyrics of this hymn and how it starts, is it, its implication is that this child is in the fullness of God's glory in the highest. The cults want to teach that Jesus is just another created thing. They want us to think he's slightly less than God. They must skip this verse. And this is where, once again, I just think about that passage in Peter which states that there are realities in which the angels just look at in redemptive history and they wonder and they go, how can this be? But here is this baby in the manger that is God. But in one sense, God has put a cloak on. The glory of the Son of God that He had had forever and ever, it is in one sense a veiled glory in this moment. You can read more about this in John chapter 17. This baby is not going to impress upon everyone that he meets right away that he is God. You know, when Moses has an encounter with the backside of God, his face so radiated in that encounter that when he went down to the camp, they wanted him to cover his face. They were afraid of his face for it reflected the glory of God. This baby is in one sense veiled. It's veiled in such a way that I would guess it's perfectly reasonable to suggest that on that first night, the baby heard more bleats and baas and cluck, cluck, clucks or whatever chickens say and, and farm animal sounds than actually people that had known the song to sing that had wanted to praise the child. And yet this was a bursting forth of the great mercy of God. God was beginning his work of ushering us in and uniting us to the greater heavenly choir through this Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world so that those once created in the image of God who were ill-prepared to sustain our faithfulness to Him could once again join the heavenly choir.
And when it comes to glory like this, we're just too often disinterested with it. We love a good novel, a good story. Jane Austen, maybe. Good love story. William Shakespeare. That's two weeks in a row. We've mentioned William Shakespeare up here. Romeo and Juliet. We, we find television shows and sporting events, gladiatorial sporting events to, to cast our cares into, to find temporary glory, and we don't go to the Word of God. I would guess, if we get all honestly, if the whole Christian church, all those who are called the Lord, would be put forth to the following challenge. In the next year, you could have the Word of God. You could have the Scriptures. You could abide in studying the Scriptures. Or you could have your favorite streaming service. Your favorite sports teams. Your favorite video games. Your favorite hobbies. I doubt many in the church would exchange those limited temporary glories for the grander satisfaction that we have in Christ. And I would guess that the angels just scratched their head at such a thing. Angels that have never faltered and never been any lesser for it in joy, in worshiping the Lord, we humans too often will trade the grandeur and glory of God for debased things, for less than satisfying things. And it's to our shame. In one sense, the gospel is like this. And this is why we can't find satisfaction in even like, you know, the Hallmark movies that are streaming out right now and all that stuff. The Bible is an infinitely more loving love story than it would be if Mother Teresa set her heart and affection on Hitler or Stalin and kept loving him in spite of all his wickedness and his evil. We're talking about an infinitely glorious God and us who all throughout the land whether worship services are 45 minutes, an hour, or if you unfortunately called a long-winded pastor an hour and a half here at Old Goshenhoppen, we can sit idle and go, oh, this is so boring. I tire of it all. I want to go out and go do things, go be entertained on my Sunday. What a pathetic people we sometimes can be. We don't embrace the fullness and the glory of this love story of the God-man who came. The God-man who came who said, you no longer have to surrender yourselves to these fleeting things, these temporary glories that cannot satisfy, but rather you can have the fullness of my love. We've been made to yearn for a better story because we originally were created for a story in eternal union with God. And yet we forsake it. Let me illustrate this one other final way. 
In October, we went with the Clydesdales. We went to Ocean City, and the Seascholtz and the Stikes even visited us at one point. But I don't care to talk about any of them. I want to talk about three other guests I had at that trip, and those were my three black Labradors, Chapel, Tulip, and Eden. And the thing I most love about Labradors is that Labradors are water dogs. The Norsemen wanted dogs that would bring in the fishing nets, and so the early breed of what has become the Labrador were the dogs that, when the Norsemen didn't want to get in the water in the cold winter, the dogs would go bring in the nets. And so a good Labrador, a true Labrador, should never be scared of the water. Actually, I've had labs that would see water in the car and they would cry. I remember driving my two dogs around San Diego and anytime I'd get close to the beach, Cinder and Duchess in the back would just be crying because they see the ocean and they'd long to jump into the ocean. Well, here in Ocean City, I bring my dogs and I bring them out to the beach any chance I kind of get. And sure enough, I don't even have to say anything to tulip and, and to chapel. They see the water and they're just, they're in. They're swimming around. I have a lifeguard come out to me and go, your dogs are going to drown. And I'm, you don't know the breed. And I tell him the story that I just told you. Labs are built for the water. And he goes, oh, I, I didn't know that. And he's just kind of standing next to me. He's watching. He's, kind of, he's enjoying this animal that belongs in the water. And yet there's one Labrador and it won't go in the water. It's Eden. It's the puppy Eden. And the dog this week has started to grow on me. I haven't been a big fan of the puppy. I didn't want a new puppy, but my wife wanted the puppy. But I remember just looking at that dog and going, Eden, you're pathetic. You're a Labrador. Go swim in the water. Go chase the bull. Go swim. And the dog wouldn't swim. The dog would try to steal the ball from the other dogs as they came in shore. You know what we are as individuals when we will not invest in the worship and the knowledge and the growing and faithfulness to our Lord? We are like a loser fool in one sense who will put on like an inner tube tied to a rope and only go into the water like at our ankles, afraid to dive into a deeper faithfulness with God. We're like a Labrador that doesn't know its purpose. Its purpose is to swim. Its purpose is to enjoy and to frolic. We were made for the glory of God. We were made to echo the angels in their praise. We were made to praise God from all eternity. And yet we failed. And yet we traded God for lesser things. And yet God still so loved us. God still had set His love upon us in such a way He still came for us. He did not forsake us. He came from the highest of heavenly places, the highest place of heavenly contact where created things can have encounters with the Creator, and He has opened up to us a way of salvation so that we can be with Him. And so that quickly gets us to the second point of this passage, and I do mean quickly. 
The second half is, and on earth, peace amongst those whom he is pleased. Now notice in the second half of this verse, we've gone from the highest meeting point of things created in the midst of the creator to now pivoting to earth to discuss the fact that humanity needed peace with the glory of God. If you were to read a secular history book, they most likely would say that the longest conflict in world history was 781 years. It was the Spanish Inquisida War, where they eventually kicked out the Muslims from ruling Spain. But the actual longest war in history that humanity has ever faced is a conflict the sons of Adam had with God, the hostility that we at our core had with God when sin entered into the world. And Jesus is, if we understand the verses from the angels, the peace offering of our triune God. This is why salvation and judgment is found only in his name on heaven and earth. Buddha might have some nice ideas, His ideas were God's ideas on how to make peace with God. Gandhi might have some nice thoughts, some great vibes. But his ideas, his vibes, were God's ideas on how to make peace with God. Muhammad, Joseph Smith, R.L. Hubbard, and maybe they had a few good ideas. I don't know. I'm still looking. But maybe at least Tom Cruise makes good movies every once in a while, I guess. But none of their ideas were God's ideas on how to make peace with God. You want to know the terms of God's peace treaty? Look at the one in whom more than a hundred million angels are singing to in the Gospel of Luke. And believe upon Him as the peace offering for your salvation and receive in Him the full and glorious salvation His first coming offered unto us. Here at the beginning of the Luke's gospel, the angels declare to us that this Jesus is the way in which peace between God and his people will be established. And in chapter 19, as we looked at earlier, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem during that final week of his mortal life, some had already come to recognize it. Do you recognize it this morning? That... This was the living gift that guarantees our peace. And then, less than a week later, that living gift gave up his life so that established in his blood, the peace of God might be signed and sealed eternally for all who believe upon him. And so, my brothers and sisters in Christ, have you joined the chorus of voices? who actively and unapologetically sing in all boldness and faithfulness about the peace and the glory of God that he has brought into the world by coming into the world. Do you bathe yourself in this truth daily? Do you renew yourself in this truth daily as well? Do you desire to further grow in holiness? Is worship of God here just a small taste of a richer week of investing in the things of God, both in, both in the work and the mission, but also in the devotion, both prayerfully and in the Word? Or is this the fullness of it all? Are you like the Labrador that won't swim? The point of His coming was that so both you and I, we might join the chorus of angels to have never-ending stream of praise they, they proclaim upon Him. 
that we might find our own mountaintop places to cry out about the goodness of God, to say glory to God in the highest and on earth peace amongst those whom he is pleased. So let us stop being afraid of those waters. Let us rather dive in and swim and share the glory of God with others, just as the angels once did for us on that day unto us where a child was given who was God's one and only Son. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we in ourselves come to you with nothing worthy of being esteemed for. And yet we come to you because you came to us. Help grow our maturity in faith. Help give us a grander hymn of praise to offer unto the Lord. Help the heavenly reality shine upon our life and the light of the Lord be reflected in the world in our actions, in how we move, in how we act, and how we have our being. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.